Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this next episode of Global Commerce Exchange. I'm really happy you're with us. Several alumni have written to me over the past few months expressing thanks for the podcast and commenting that it reminded them of their days in the classroom. So that got me thinking, why not develop an episode that really is like being in class? Today, I'm delighted to welcome six current students here at the University of Virginia, all of whom were in my global commerce class this past semester. Together, we're going to discuss and debate many of the key issues of the day, learning from each other as we go. Joining us in the conversation will be Rick Carew, McIntyre visiting lecturer and the producer of our podcast. I hope you'll enjoy being back in the classroom. First, let me introduce the students, all fourth years here at McIntyre, and tell you a bit about them. John Ahern, originally from Long Island, plans to join PJT's Strategic Advisory Group following graduation. Kara Guo, who hails from Singapore, will also join PJT. Jeannie Hirsch from Rochester, New York, plans to start her career at Warburg Pincus. Jack Murphy from Burke, Virginia, is heading to Morgan Stanley Investment Banking after graduation. Next, we have Augustina Stefani, originally from Argentina and more recently from Connecticut, who plans to join the Financial Sponsors Group at Credit Suisse. And rounding out the group is Ishan Bean from Ashburn, Virginia, who's going into investment banking at Guggenheim. Thanks to all for joining Professor Carew and me today, and welcome to the podcast. Let's get started. Jack, I think you're on for the first question. Thanks, Professors Malay and Carew. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having us on the show and for all the great work you both do here at McIntyre. Uh, to start us off this morning, I was hoping to discuss the macroeconomic outlook. Uh, many investors continue to express confidence in the inflation trade, and personally, I can't help but agree that as the economy reopens more widely, that the velocity of money will spike and we could see core PCE inflation uh, above 2%, which poses risk to current valuations. Um, so what are, uh, what are your thoughts on the potential pathways that the macroeconomic environment could take from here? Yeah, Jack, great question. And um, I think I broadly agree with you. Let me, let me just kind of share with you a little bit my thought process. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, the injection of liquidity into the economy is nothing new. But I think this time we have to think about it in the broader context of coming out of the pandemic. And so I think the most important thing or the most important assumption that should be driving our thinking is how you think the pandemic is going to play out as we go through 2021. Uh, my own view is fairly optimistic. I, it's probably a consensus view that as vaccination really takes hold, particularly in the U.S., that we will reach that all-important uh, level of herd immunity, and that will allow people to begin to resume, you know, what feels like more or less normal lives. And so what's got me concerned about what's going on right now, both with Fed policy and the very likely um, fiscal policy that we're going to see shortly, is that it's going to collide with an end of the pandemic at exactly the time that people are excited to go back out and resume their full activity in um, the economy. And I think the collision of those two 
events at round about the same time of uh, spring into summer could very definitely produce um, inflationary uh, pressures. Now, whether those inflationary pressures are going to be lasting, I mean, I think an important question is whether that's a um, sort of a bump coming out of the um, what we've all been through over the last uh, year or so, or whether it's a more fundamental turning point is, you know, equally important question that we need to consider. Rick, anything that you would sort of add to that? Well, I would just add that um, we continue to see very high levels of unemployment. Uh, there is a lot of slack in the labor market that the economy is going to have to absorb. So there is some supply uh, buffers against some of the uh, inflationary pressures in, in the economy. Uh, you also have oil prices that remain below historic levels. So that'll continue to be supportive and may help uh, ease some of the inflationary pressure in the economy over the short term. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. But, you know, Rick, another thing on my mind there is, you know, while there is undoubtedly slack in the labor market, does that slack in the labor market match demand in the labor market. So I keep hearing from uh, from business contacts that I have that they can't necessarily find the labor that they need to expand their businesses. So I think, you know, the macro data is one thing, but the reality on Main Street may look a little bit different. I guess time will tell. Jack, anything further you'd sort of add to that or any reactions? Uh, I, th I think that's a great point. Uh, one thing that I would... Um I guess uh, that I think is worth mentioning um, is just the degree to which there is uncertainty in predicting inflation by anybody. Um, you know, if anyone tells you that they know what inflation is going to be six months from now, you should probably should not listen. Um, and, you know, e even the best macroeconomic models um, today, um, you know, don't outperform simple autoregressive um, model. Uh, and so, you know, to, to your point, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with your thesis broadly, but I think it's really hard to know for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Ishan, uh, do you uh, have a question that you wanted to ask? Yeah, definitely. And again, uh, thanks, Professors Malay and crew for having us all on the podcast. Um, so something kind of tying in directly into Jack's question regarding sort of the broader macroeconomic outlook and tying that into financial markets, we're seeing equity valuations have become really stretched in the past year versus historical levels. And sort of two indicators I've been looking at are last week, I believe February 25th, so just about a week ago, the Buffett indicator hit an all-time high. Um, and additionally, tech companies in general have been trading at 22 times for earnings, which again is an all-time high driven obviously by strong growth expectations in this low interest rate environment. So my question I'm sort of thinking about is, as we see equity valuation get stretched, do we think these levels of optimistic growth assumptions can be maintained in a rising interest rate environment, both for the market broadly and also more specifically technology companies, which we really saw go through a boom over the past decade? Yeah, Sean, I'll, I'll go ahead and tackle that one. Um, to set the stage, I think maybe take a step back and think about actually how much um, the largest tech companies contribute to the to the stock market. Uh, it's helpful to have a few numbers in hand. Um, if you look at the five most valuable sort of big tech companies today, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook, those five companies combined were worth $7.5 trillion at the end 
of 2020. Um, now that in terms of scale, that's uh, increased by 52% since the end of 2019. And that's up over five times since the end of 2012. So if you think about just how important those companies have become to both the economy, which we all can observe in our daily lives, uh, at the same time, they've also become incredibly important to the market. So the stock market, the way it goes, is the way that big tech goes today. Um, in terms of your question about whether they can deal with a rising interest rate environment, I think for the large uh, tech companies, they're actually fairly well positioned to be able to navigate a rising interest rate environment. The reason being that most of them are very profitable today. Uh, they're also um, companies that have a lot of pricing power. So if you think about software or Amazon delivery or um, Apple iPhone products, they have the ability to adjust their pricing in an inflationary environment. They also don't have a lot of input costs like oil or, or others that they might um, hurt their margins. Um, I would say, though, that I think what you're getting at is an important point for some of the smaller tech companies, some of the more uh, high-risk tech companies. Think of um, perhaps electric vehicle companies, um, some of the more speculative software companies. Those, those firms, because of the structure of their cash flows, which means they don't make a lot of money today, but they're expected to make a lot of money in the future, when you raise interest rates, uh, you make those uh, long-term, long-dated cash flows much less valuable, and you make short-term cash flows more valuable. So as a result, I think you'll see a bifurcation in the market between the big tech companies that are profitable today, which I think will remain very valuable, and some of the more speculative uh, tech companies that may have expectations for earnings in the future, but may not produce earnings today, which would likely suffer. Yeah, Rick, I'll just jump in there. I, I mean, I think I broadly agree with what you're saying and would really underscore that last point that it really makes no sense to talk about tech as a uh, uniform thing. There's tech and then there's uh, tech that has no profitability. And those are two completely different sectors and they will respond very, very differently to the rising interest rate environment. But I think I would kind of disagree with you a little bit on the first uh, point that you made where you sound relatively positive on the five big tech companies. I mean, I think we have to remember that all five of those companies benefited enormously during um, the pandemic, and we all understand why. But if we're moving into an environment now where life is going to resume some degree of normalcy and certain sectors that have been hit really bad by the pandemic are going to presumably pick back up. I think that's that can't also be positive for the tech companies. I mean, one plus one can't equal three. So um, if consumers are going to start changing their behavior and, you know, we're not all, so to speak, going to be sitting around watching Netflix for 20 hours a week, that's going to have an impact. And so I'm a little less uh, maybe positive than you, even on those large stocks, although I completely agree with you about the broader point you made around interest rate sensitivity. To me, it seems like there have to be some underlying social and political causes that are driving these extreme trends. So my question for you, professors, is what do you think these causes are and what implications do they have for the future of financial markets? 
Yeah, Jeannie, great question. Rick, I'll, I'll take a stab at that and then turn it over to you. Um, I think as I see it, there's a couple of different things going on in the phenomena that you mentioned that may or may not be um, related. Um, there's no doubt about it that we're seeing what I suppose we could call the demo, uh, democratization of investing with the rise of uh, platforms like Robinhood, where more and more um, people, notably young people who traditionally have not been involved in financial markets are getting involved in financial markets because it frankly is so easy to do and in, and in many ways almost gamified um, in the approach to um, these young investors. Um, that frankly has me worried. I mean, um, I think you guys all know from your own studies, um, understanding financial markets, understanding company valuations, you know, this is not this is not a game, right? It's a it's a pretty serious undertaking. There's a lot of sophistication that goes into it. You are if you choose to enter into the market, you are in a certain sense competing with people who are very, very good at what they do. And I worry that um, people who have recently been exposed to some of these um, platforms for investing are unaware of that and could very significantly uh, get burned um, through through that um, lack of understanding and lack of sophistication. Now, that's a little bit different than what I think is going on with SPACs and what's going on with Bitcoin. To me, those phenomenon tell us that there is just far, far too much liquidity in financial markets. That is too much liquidity, uh, not enough good ideas. And so that money has to go somewhere. And it's doing things like bidding up the price of Bitcoin, which in my view bears no resemblance whatsoever to its actual value. And it has led to the creation of the SPAC phenomenon. And, and I'll tell you, I am not a fan of SPACs. I, I don't think they're healthy for financial markets. And I most certainly don't think they're a good idea for investors. Rick, what would you say to that? Well, I would just uh, agree with your, your point overall that um, we're seeing a lot of speculation and um, the fundamental driver is liquidity and low interest rates. So if you just think about expectations um, over the long term of getting a good return on your investment, if interest rates are incredibly low, it pushes people out on the risk curve to move towards uh, much more risky investments. Um, I, I might just give a, um, a reading recommendation here. Um, there's a fantastic book written about the 1920s called Reminiscences of a Stock Market Operator, which just really gives an amazing cultural um, explanation for a lot of the same phenomenon we're seeing, such as bucket shop trading, which I think is very analogous to what's happening in the SPAC world or the crypto world today. So uh, I would encourage you all to read that book if you're interested more on understanding some of the historical parallels for what we're going through. Hey, Ishan, you want to jump in there? Yeah, definitely. So I definitely agree with uh, your all's perspectives about sort of investors seeking risky assets in financial markets, pursuing SPACs and Bitcoin and everything else. But on the point of Bitcoin, especially, um, I've been coming across a lot of reading in terms of the sort of bull thesis for Bitcoin and seeming more as less of a risky asset and more as a store of value. And sort of going back to the original discussion with Jack's question regarding the changing macro environment with facing, especially like 
potentially an inflationary period and rising interest rates and everything else, a lot of investors are viewing Bitcoin as sort of the modern gold and a store of value, which seems to be driving up the price. Um, and so definitely curious on your all's thoughts on that as sort of it being seen more as a store of value in a rising inflationary environment rather than just simply a risky asset for risky returns. Yeah, I guess historically, the parallel I probably think about is less gold and more tulips. Um, remarkable as that whole period of history uh, was. Look, here's the thing about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is not a currency. Uh, Bitcoin is not used in any meaningful way uh, to exchange value between buyers and sellers. And it never will. And the reason, in my opinion, it never will is because governments won't allow that. Um, if Bitcoin were to ever get any real traction in the economy, in my opinion, there's not a government in the world that would allow that to continue within their country. A government simply can't put itself in the position where it no longer controls the fundamental core of its economy, which is the currency that is used to um, permit exchange. So I think, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who have invested in Bitcoin and probably did done very well. And, and you may just be listening to me thinking, you know, he just doesn't get it. And maybe I don't get it. But on the other hand, I just I don't see that fundamental value. And therefore, I think ultimately Bitcoin will probably end badly. Uh, by the way, let me just add one other thing is I think everyone should clearly distinguish in your mind between cryptocurrency and digital currency. Most or many governments in the world, uh, notably the Chinese government, is very actively involved in creating a digital version of its currency, so-called e-renminbi. Uh, in the case of China, the Japanese are doing it. Many other countries are doing it. In my opinion, that's likely to be quite successful. I wouldn't be surprised at all if in the not too distant future, call it 10, 20 years, there is no physical currency in many countries of the world that, that our current, our notion of currency will have become fully digitized. But that's an altogether different thinking or a different process. And I, I feel that sometimes students and others that I talk to kind of conflate in their mind these two words, digital and crypto, as if they're broadly the same thing, but they're, they're actually quite different. Let's see. I think I'm seeing a hand from John Ahern. What's up, John? Hi, Professor. Um, first off, thanks for having us on. I know I speak for everyone when I say I'm really excited to be part of the conversation here. Um, so, so far, we've talked about some really important impl implications for asset values, but Right now, I'd like to shift a little bit more into how we should be thinking about disruptive technology in the context, in a global context for political economy. Um, so in 2020, China took in $163 billion in foreign direct investment inflows. It's the first time that they eclipsed the U.S. in that figure. Um, so something that I've been thinking about a lot and what I'm curious about is how the China versus U.S. superpower battle will play out. And particularly, what will the future of innovation look like? Thanks, John, for that question. Um, I'm happy to tackle it and then uh, let Professor Malay add on his perspective. Um, there's no doubt that the U.S. and China have competed in the technology space, uh, particularly in the last 10 years. Uh, it's been a, an area that both economies have really focused on. Um, I would say today... My evaluation overall is that 
Silicon Valley remains uh, the general source of innovation in the global economy, but that China is doing a lot of things that I think are becoming more and more innovative. Um, China has really sought to to improve its talent pool in innovation, doing it two ways. One is they have a program called the Thousand Talents Program, which is focused on recruiting uh, Chinese exceptional scientists and uh, technical people with technical abilities to return to China after spending most of their career abroad. Uh, at the same time, they've also are producing a huge number of STEM graduates, which give them uh, a large engineering pool that helps to uh, fuel many of the of the big companies in China, like Alibaba, Huawei, Tencent. But there's a big difference between the way that those the two economies currently innovate. So I would argue, uh, if you look at the framework of Peter Thiel, uh, in terms of zero to one and one to N in, in innovation, the U.S. is still reigning supreme in terms of zero to one innovation, which means going from a concept to creating a new business or creating a new uh, type of program. I think where China is really catching up is the one to N innovation, which means taking a basic scientific development and translating that into a number of applications that they can use. So for example, artificial intelligence is one field where China and the US are both very interested in developments. And I think you can make the argument that the US is probably in the lead, but what China is doing with companies like uh, ByteDance and its TikTok application, are you finding ways to take artificial intelligence and applying those to problems uh, by using massive data sets to be able to, um, to improve on that? So I would say the US is probably still the leader in innovation today, but that China is doing a lot of applications of innovation that have been highly successful. Yeah, it's super interesting, Rick. I think I definitely agree with you. And I'd also just add to um, our response to John, you know, John, you kind of raised the question in a broader geopolitical context. And that got me thinking about the combined forces of 5G and also the Belt and Road Initiative. And so what I would say about that is, uh, first of all, both are extraordinarily important in my view. I think when a lot of people think about Belt and Road, because the word infrastructure is often associated with it, they immediately think about ports and airports and tunnels and bridges and that kind of infrastructure. But very importantly, the Belt Road Initiative is also about tech infrastructure. And the bedrock of that tech infrastructure that China is going to be building all over the world through the Belt and Road Initiative is, in fact, 5G. And um, I don't know if any of you guys noticed it, but there was a very interesting op-ed that showed up in um, in the FT, I think, last week, written by a guy called Eric Schmidt. That name may be familiar to you. He used to be the uh, head of Google, a uh, renowned figure in, the tech, in tech circles. And um, his argument, essentially, in his opinion, was that one of the reasons that the United States has clearly led the way in tech innovation up until now is because it was the United States and U.S. companies that, um, in fact, set the standards for 4G. And then he went on to argue that that is not the case in 5G, that very clearly it is Chinese companies and most notably Huawei that are creating the global standards 
for 5G. And so he was making the argument that in the same way that American companies, Silicon Valley companies sort of had an edge in, in a 4G context, he believes Chinese companies will have an innovation edge in the 5G era. And when you combine, if he's right about that, and you combine that with what BRI is all about, that makes me um, certainly pause and take notice and think that the competitive dynamic, at the very least, is going to get a whole lot tougher uh, than it has been, say, uh, thus far in, in this century. Hey, Augustina, I see a hand up. What's going on? Hey, Professor Malay. Thank you, uh, you and uh, Professor Carew. I'm really excited to be here. So- of course. John's point about China taking on tech got me thinking about how these large technical investments could really help revolutionize China's workforce. Now, I'm wondering what will these technological investments mean for the U.S.? You know, about 10% of the workforce in the U.S. is dedicated to labor-intensive industries like manufacturing and farming. And these are two industries that are at high risk of being displaced by technology. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on where do you see the U.S. workforce going and you know what might the consequences be? Yeah, great question, Augustina. I mean, as we all know, the disruptive technologies that are uh, coming over the next decade, the ones we talked about in class last semester, are going to continue to be highly disruptive for labor. In the United States, I think my response would be to say that in terms of manufacturing and um, farm-related labor, most of that damage, if you will, has already been done. In other words, in a U.S. manufacturing and farming context, uh, those processes are already highly, highly automated. Now, I think you're correct, Augustina, they will become even more automated, and we can probably expect that 10% figure that you mentioned to go down even further. But where I think the real dislocation is going to take place in um, the U.S. economy and in the U.S. labor force is not so much in manufacturing, but in services. And Augustina, just think about it in your own daily life, right? More and more when you uh, jump on a phone call to try to get help with something, you are almost in all likelihood dealing with some sort of a voice automated bot, right? You're not, it's, it's actually quite difficult to get to a human being to perhaps get a question answered or think about um, how frequently nowadays when you go um, into a store, perhaps in a non-COVID context, you're dealing with some sort of a kiosk or you're dealing with a um, QR code based reader of some sort to um, automate your transaction rather than dealing with a, a teller or a clerk or a sales agent or something like that. And so I think that's really, you know, when I look out 10, 20 years and think, okay, where are the big dislocations going to come in the US labor force? That's what I'm thinking about more than manufacturing. But, but the last thing I'll just say, coming back to your question about manufacturing, What's actually got me quite worried is think about the impact in countries that have not yet developed economically. You know, if you think about the path of development all over the world, the story is always the same, right? A very relatively poor country for a variety of reasons, the circumstances are such that it can begin to build a manufacturing sector. Usually that's um, manufacturing fairly low value added goods that employ lots and lots of people. And that's been the path of development for 
um, most any country you can think of. And, and most re recently over the past 40 years, that's been the pathway of development for China. What if that pathway is gone in the future? In other words, what if robotics, 3D printing, other technologies become so sophisticated that there simply is no need for that labor anymore? And if there is no need for that labor anymore, then how do those countries develop? I, I don't have an answer to that question, but it's something that I think about a lot. Anything you'd add there, Rick? Yeah, I would just say, um, I think your point is right that uh, manufacturing jobs have really already, for the large part, that, that could have been automated have been have disappeared from the U.S. economy, and so what we've seen, uh, you know, in the in the 1990s and early 2000s with NAFTA and China entering the WTO is those jobs already shifting to lower lower cost environments. Uh, what what I'm worried about right now are as Professor Malay also mentioned uh, the Uber drivers, Amazon warehouse workers, uh, restaurant retail um, jobs disappearing. And one of the very interesting things I think we learned from that last wave of job losses um, in the 90s and early 2000s from a combination of automation and globalization was that the efforts to retrain workers largely failed. So a lot of the remedies that people put forth for how to solve globalization and automation was, let's retrain our workforce. Let's encourage workers to learn computer skills that were previously in manufacturing, and that'll help them to adjust to the new uh, job opportunities available. And I think what we learned is that actually, in reality, it's very hard to teach a 50-year-old how to uh, have a set of skills that would be attractive for employers um, in the in the new economy. So one of the things that we've seen as a policy prescription that's really come to the fore is the concept of universal basic income, which is meant to provide a safety net for a lot of individuals who might be displaced by these automation trends. So you can imagine people today uh, who are Uber drivers or Amazon warehouse workers, um, there are not a lot of opportunities available for them in, um, you know, opportunities that might be interesting to some of the large employers that you guys are going to uh, or, or other big companies that have job openings. So that mismatch of skills that uh, Professor Malay mentioned earlier is, is going to be even harder. And so as a result, people are looking towards direct payments to help fill that gap. Yeah, great point. Hey, Kara, great to see you. Are you still in Singapore or have you come back to the U.S.? No, I just came back to the U.S. Uh, about two weeks ago. Oh, great. Well, welcome. Yeah. Hi, professors. Thank you so much for having us on. This has been a very interesting conversation. So I just wanted to move on to the more social aspect of technology. And in the wake of January 6, we saw a lot of deep tech forming on social media in the interest of preventing instability and further bloodshed. And I expect instances like that to get more common as social media continues to grow in influence. And it worries me that social media seems to be in charge of managing information themselves, but I also don't see a better alternative. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether social media should be managing information this way, and if not, who is the right regulator for it? All right, over to you, Karu. I think you're the better guy on this one. 
Great. Well, um, that's a terrific question, Kara. Uh, really, um, really thoughtful. And I think a huge issue for many of the biggest tech companies in the world today. So for companies such as um, Facebook and Twitter, to set the scene, you have to think about kind of the issues that they've dealt with since they've been created. Uh, and the biggest issue with regard to your question that they've faced is the issue of whether they should be considered as platforms or publishers. So if you think about traditional media like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, um, it's been pretty well uh, established that they are publishers. And as a result, they're responsible for the type of content that they publish. So for example, if you were to be the subject of an article that was um, inappropriate or slanderous, that would then they would bear responsibility for that uh, article and, and the contents that it was published and a court could fine them or uh, levy a judgment against them. But companies like Facebook and Twitter have very uh, strenuously fought back against the idea that they're publishers and they prefer to be considered as platforms. So basically similar to a public space where people can share their own ideas without the owner of the park or owner of that shop be responsible for the content um, that is being um, said in front of it. And that comes down to the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is kind of the, um, the, the guiding law on this issue. And so that's what there's a big debate going on right now as to whether Section 230 should be applied to these big tech companies. Um, and as they continue to fight against being being considered as publishers, one of the things um, that they've done is they've tried to outsource the regulation of the content on their platforms. So, for example, um, after January 6th, the uh, Facebook and I think of several other platforms have decided to uh, revoke the accounts of former President Donald Trump. And what they've done is uh, they've created something called Facebook has created something called the oversight board, which I'd encourage you to read a recent New Yorker article about the creation of that body. But it basically is a uh, set of around 20 members from around the world that basically is being considered as the Facebook Supreme Court, which is a little bit of a scary concept to think about uh, giving the power of the Supreme Court to these 20 uh, nominated people who are who are not Facebook. But for Facebook, it gives them the ability to outsource these kind of big controversial decisions. And so it'll be very interesting to see how they handle whether to reinstate uh, Donald Trump's accounts on Facebook and Instagram. And um, we'll, we're still yet to see what the consequences might be. But it really all comes back to whether they're going to be considered publishers or platforms and uh, I would continue to encourage you to continue watching that debate. Professor Malay, what else might you add? Yeah, I don't know if I'd add a whole lot to that. I mean, I, I uh, appreciated your response. And Kara, I really appreciated the question. Um, I would just say to all of our listeners, um, if you haven't seen it already, I would highly, highly recommend the documentary on um, Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Uh, I'm pretty sure all of you guys uh, watched it because we talked about it in class last semester, but I think is a uh, really important uh, perspective that everybody should be um, dialed into. Hey, Jeannie, what's up? 
Yeah, thank you for that super interesting discussion, professors, um, on where these social media giants maybe should curb information. So I'm curious to hear more about maybe where they should not curb information. Um, and I'm bringing this up in the context of, we know that recently Facebook removed news from its Australian sites in order to negotiate better terms with the Australian government. So now whether social media giants should be providers of news is a separate issue, but it seems to me that Facebook might have acted with far too heavy of a hand here. So my question for both of you is, with these social media giants or just tech in general, where do we draw the line between the pursuit of profit maximization and making these companies act in the public's best interest? Wow, great question. Rick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree, uh, Jeannie. I think it really comes down to how do we think about the role of the corporation in society? And um, specifically within the, the example that you cited about Facebook in Australia, one of the big challenges there was when you remove news and um, information from different news sources, you also remove a lot of uh, public, uh, publicly interested announcements. So there's a lot of um, news sources that rely on traditional media and Facebook to give out um, information for the public safety. So fire departments, police departments, other announcements that were actually cut off uh, in Australia uh, as a result of this, this action. So you can see just how challenging it is for these social media companies to parse out which, which things they should allow and should not allow on different platforms. And it goes back to our last question, you know, when the president of the United States is being no longer allowed to post on your platform, what types of information are you um, controlling that might be in the public interest? I, I would just say generally, you know, as these companies like like Facebook, Google, et cetera, become much larger and more essential to our daily life, there's inevitably going to be a more important role for them to play in promoting the public interest. And one of the advantages that companies like this have is that they're actually quite profitable companies. And so because they're not fighting for every last dollar, um, they do have the ability to uh, do certain things that might be in the public interest um, with some of the profitability or what some might call monopoly profits that they they achieve. And certainly there's going to be a negotiation that's going to happen uh, in the in the coming years about um, what tech companies are doing that may or may not be in the public interest. So we've seen from both the left and the right in the United States Congress, uh, different politicians trying to uh, pursue antitrust regulations or questioning them over their practices of censorship or deplatforming, as we discussed in the last question. So I think the issue is still very much up in the air, and uh, it'll be a very interesting one to watch over the next five years to see how much they do uh, to act more in the public interest than they have in the past, and whether that will be enough to satisfy regulators. Hey, Jeannie, I'll just I'll just throw in here also that, you know, if these we actually have some experience already 
in thinking about companies that essentially fulfill the role as public utilities. And in fact, we don't allow those companies to maximize profits, right? Companies that sell you the electricity that you're using right now, the gas that you're using, the water, other public utilities, those are regulated. And so, you know, I think it's at least worth thinking about if these companies are so insistent on the fact that they are nothing more than platforms, uh, that sounds a whole lot like a utility to me. And so maybe if you're just a platform, you ought to be regulated like a platform, um, both with respect to the content that is flowing across your platform, as well as the uh, profitability that you derive from that flow. Really no different than the fact that we regulate Dominion Energy here in um, Virginia both with respect to the quality of the energy that they're required to provide to your home and also the profits that they can seek from uh, doing that. So something at least worth considering. Hey, Jack, what's up? Do you want to weigh in there? Absolutely. Uh, I was hoping to take the conversation a little bit back towards financial markets um, in terms of our discussion of technology, um, you know, especially keeping in mind the uh, tech sell-off of the last few weeks and you know the long-standing cries by a lot of investors that the market, especially technology, is in a bubble. Um, you know, most historically transformative technologies like railroads uh, went through multiple periods of, of dramatic booms and busts. And what what I really wanted to ask is, is it enough as an investor to bet on the right technology, or can you be right about you know how the future will will, will look and still lose? Yeah, great, great question. Can you just bet on a new general purpose technology and let the rest of it take care of itself? I guess where I would start with that, Rick, would be to just say it it depends on who owns the technology and whether that technology is proprietary. In other words, if there is a new general purpose technology and that technology is patented and owned by a single um, inventor who has the sole rights to license that technology in a whole lot of different applications across the economy, then, you know, you don't really care what they do with that technology or who they license it to. You just want to, if you believe in that technology, you want to get on board. But if you're talking about technologies that are more in the public domain and widely available for many, many different companies to um, take advantage of, for example, the EV space, you know, then no, I don't think you can just randomly invest in any company that claims it's going to, you know, kind of do EV and assume that's going to work out. Because as with any new industry in the early days, there will be many, many companies fighting for space in that industry. But ultimately, as happens in all industries, there'll be that winnowing out and there will be winners and losers. And so you could have ended up investing in a company that was an EV company, but that company turns out for a whole lot of reasons that you might not have thought through to not be one of those winners. So, you know, there, I think it's not enough to just simply back the technology, but you really have to understand and think through which companies are going to be best positioned to take advantage of this technology and to turn it into sustainable 
uh, profits. My guess right now is that we are missing a couple of things in that analysis, and I'd mention just two. The first is that I think many investors here in the U.S. are thinking of EV as an American phenomenon, and they're thinking about it in terms of what's going on here in the United States. But the U.S. is actually lagging very badly in EV compared to both Europe and China. In my opinion, EV will play out much, much more rapidly in those two geographies rather than here. And so you ought to be thinking about the companies that are best positioned in those two geographies rather than companies that appear to be well positioned here in the United States. And then the second thing I would just say is I think everybody is badly underestimating the power of the incumbents. I mean, if you think that companies like Volkswagen and BMW and General Motors and Toyota are just going to sit idly by and allow new companies that no one had ever heard of five years ago to sort of own the EV space, I think that is badly underestimating the power of those companies. And so, look, it's still very early days in EV, but I would expect five years from now when we're talking about the great EV companies. Um, I think many of them are going to be companies, Jack, that you've known ever since you were a kid as some of the great car companies of the world. Rick, anything you'd add in there? Yeah, I might just um, give another example that might might resonate with, with you all. Um, and that's the investment in fiber optic and broadband ca- cables that happened in the 90s. So during the last internet bubble, you know, there was a huge amount of investment in the information superhighway, as it was called at that time, which really enabled um, the, there was a lot of funding, you know, that came from the late 90s internet bubble that went into some of those um, telecom companies and fiber optic cable providers. And in this way, you can think of it as kind of a bubble is a wonderful thing for economic growth, because all of that overinvestment made it very cheap in the U.S. to um, access the Internet in the 2000s. And all of that created the framework that allowed us to innovate on top of that and to be able to have kind of the most uh, sophisticated digital economy of of any country in the world. Um, And so, you know, when you think about these issues, you have to think about how much public good you're creating, what what kind of value you're creating for society as a business, and then also how can you capture that value? And I think, as Professor Malay mentioned, um, there are a lot of companies today that look very successful that may not be very good in the long term on capturing that that value that they create. You know, Rick, that's a, that's a really great point. And, and I would even globalize the point. I mean, I remember when I first moved to Japan in the late 1980s, when I would call back to the U.S. to speak to friends and family, those calls were going over uh, satellite. And the cost of a phone call at that time was about $2 per minute to call from Tokyo to um, back to the U.S. One of the great companies that got... Um, created during uh, that period of time you were referring to is a company called Global Crossing, which of course none of these students have ever heard of because it no longer exists. But there was so much capital available that Global Crossing was one of the big companies that essentially cabled 
underneath both the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and created the cable infrastructure that exists today that rendered satellite telephony, you know, irrelevant. And so now, of course, we send WhatsApp messages all over the world for free uh, riding on those cables. And so it's a really great point you make, Rick, that that if there is a uh, silver lining to the gray cloud of capital excess and um, and bubbles, it's that it does create the capacity sometimes for these great technologies to roll out. It's just that, sadly, some of the companies that that lead the way end up on you know not really being sustainable in the in the long term. Well, I see we're running a little short of time, but Augustine, I, I know you, I see you have another question, and I'd love to uh, get to that as well. What's on your mind? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, on the topic of investments and specifically sustainability, which you just mentioned, impact investing is on the rise and you see a lot, a lot of allocators are putting more money into ESG-related portfolios. And then you also see business leaders such as Larry Fink urging CEOs to create a business model plan that will be compatible with what he refers to as the net zero economy. And if they don't do this, CEOs risk losing BlackRock's investment. So do you think this increased popularity in impact investing will redefine private equity investments? And will it also be the same for public investments? Yeah, I think great question. And and I think the short answer is, you know, it already is. I mean, there's no question about it. Impact investing is, is real and more and more capital is being redirected away from, let's just call it traditional investing, to um, impact investing. And, you know, by the way, that's in part a generational phenomenon. I mean, something that's going on right now, I guess to a certain extent, it's always going on, is, of course, as elderly people get up in years and then ultimately pass away and their wealth is inherited uh, by their heirs, their children or their grandchildren who are in younger generations. Of course, the investment philosophy uh, shifts. And several of my friends who are deeply involved in the private banking space tell me that, you know, not a day goes by where they're not having conversations with relatively young heirs, you know, not as young as you, but people in their, say, 40s or 50s or perhaps early 60s who have recently inherited large sums of money who are saying, you know, I don't want to uh, be the steward of this capital in the same way that my mom and dad did. I want to do something different with the capital. I want to be more socially accountable. I want to be more environmental. Help me think about redirecting this capital into um, you know the types of things that that Larry Fink is talking about. So that's that's to me a very a very positive thing because you know as we all know money talks. If 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 the money starts moving and requiring and and the, the people behind those capital allocation decisions start requiring more accountable investing on both social and environmental um, uh, bases, then you know that's going to happen. And slowly but surely, we will continue to see the change that I know we all uh, want and hope to see. Kara, something that you would add there? Yeah, I just wanted to go off on the topic of corporate social responsibility. So over the past year, companies in the U.S. have been more willing to take a stand on issues like systemic racism and electoral integrity. And that goes against the longstanding tradition of companies staying out of politics. And it got me wondering, should the corporate world have a responsibility 
to take a stand on these social, political, and even humanitarian crises? And is the change that we are seeing likely to last? Wow, such such a great question, Kara, and and such an important question. And I mean, I'll start and then uh, see what Professor Carew would like to add. But but absolutely, companies should take a stand on issues. They should not only take a stand on issues, but they should direct their business models to um, to push and and do everything they can to drive positive social change. I, I just reject with every fiber of my body the notion that the role of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. I think that is just an utterly flawed way of thinking about business because I think that starting point, you know, to me, it sort of suggests that there's on the right hand, something called society. And on the left hand, there's something called business. And those are like two separable things, but they're totally inseparable. Commerce is society. Society is commerce. They, they are synonyms, right? They're not, business is not some separate thing that's kind of happening in its own orbit. We all are commercial beings. That's what we do as humans. We engage in commerce of one kind or another, broadly defined, all day long. And so, of course, companies should be acting responsible, responsibly. Of course, companies should be um, holding themselves out as uh, beacons for everything that should be positive and good in our society. And, you know, I know the six of you and I know that you all are increasingly thinking that way. And I really, really hope that not only you, but but all of the listeners, you know, to this podcast will think of yourself as one little force in this great big world that can push in the in your own company that you work for for the positive change that you wish to see. Rick, what would are, am I on the right page there, or, or do you think I'm too strident in in that view? No, I think that's very well put, and I think it's um, to your to your point about what we are doing and what our, our purpose is at the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia, it's really to create people who think about business in a way that's uh, inclusive of the goals they have in their life for how to make a change in the world. If you um, just pursue profit to the exclusion of everything else, you'll often find that um, in the end, uh, you won't really f feel like you've made a real contribution. So I think we are trying to teach students and and create future business leaders that are much more holistic in the way that they view um, business and society. And uh, I'm very encouraged to see that so many of our students are interested in making an impact um, beyond just um, making more money for themselves. Very well said, Rick, and, and thanks for that. And gosh, Thanks everyone, um, students and Professor Carew for a, a really great conversation. It's just always such a pleasure to me as a professor to get to discuss what's on the minds of our terrific students here at UVA. And I also really appreciate all of you on a Friday morning, no less, taking time to do this. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed being with us and that they've had a sense of being together with us today in our virtual classroom. Thanks guys, and I hope you have an awesome weekend. 
Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew. Special thanks to Al Hoover, McIntyre's Director of Media Development for audio editing. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners, and we look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!